welcome to our first ever podcast. Uh, I'm Gemma Soul hosting this podcast today and with me I have David Soul who is co-founder and managing partner at School for CEOs. Thanks for joining me David. You're very welcome. Um, David I'd like to ask you a few questions today um, and to start with I think it would be helpful to go very general. Um, so I'd like to ask you a little bit more about your career uh, to date. So can you tell me about a little bit more about this? So I was much more interested in playing rugby than uh, carving out a career when I was uh, younger. I think my very early career ambitions were to be a vet. Um, I was a big advocate of um, the James Herriot vet books. I loved All Creatures Great and Small and, and I found that really inspiring. lived in the country and where you know, big animals were all about. And I thought it would be great to be a vet, but I, I discovered very quickly that um, I wasn't going to be good enough to get three A's at A level in the sciences. Uh, I wasn't particularly scientific. My brain isn't particularly scientific. I was much more suited to languages, actually. Um, but notwithstanding that, I, I pursued it. So I, I was kind of went a bit up a blind alley in that regard. So when I was choosing my universities, I actually chose them on the basis of the strength of their rugby sides and their rugby fixture list rather than the uh, courses that they offered. And I, when having chosen a select, or selected a number of universities, I then looked through the UCAS uh, booklet and, and picked a course which sounded interested, interesting to me. And given that I'd come from an agricultural or farming background, I thought agricultural economics sounded pretty good. I applied to Exeter and I got accepted there. And, and as I say, I was much more interested in <clears throat> pursuing rugby than actually worrying about a career. Uh, moved to Bath, played for Bath for about four years, ended up in the John Player Cup winning side in 1987, um, got married when I was, uh, in 1986, and we decided to move back to Scotland, uh, kind of the home country, after the World Cup in 1987. And it was really then that I started thinking about what could I do as a job? A um, very good friend of mine, Finlay Calder, worked in the grain trade, and he was good enough to uh, network on my behalf and find an opportunity or, or point me in the direction of an opportunity in a, in a grain trading organisation. So I worked there for a couple of years, um, buying grain off farmers, um, and wasn't really sat satisfied or fulfilled in that. It was uh, very seasonal, uh, very much focused around the, the, the harvest time and for the rest of the year one was pretty underemployed and, and I found that boredom you know, very frustrating. Um, and an opportunity came up at United Distillers which was the spirits company of Guinness in 1990 uh, or back end of 1989 for a grain buyer and so I applied there and got the job and I, I worked my way through and it was eventually responsible for, for running everything coming into a distillery or buying everything coming into a distillery in terms of raw material and everything coming out of a distillery in terms of co-product. So it was quite a big job, running a team of 10, quite a significant budget. Um, but I got that job in my mid-30s and had I, th you know, I'd been so focused on that particular role in the organisation. Um, when I got it, I suddenly thought, gosh, is, it it? is this it for the next 20 years, but, you know, until I'm 55 and can take, take my pension? I thought, you know, I was still quite ambitious in that, in that regard, and I thought, oh, this is going to be slightly frustrating. And then 
Guinness and Grand Met merged about two years later, and that created another opportunity for me um, to go and do an international role for Diageo as it is now, and really leverage the size and scale that, that the international business had become with an amazing uh, array of brands. So I, along with four others, uh, joined a small team to look after about £900 million worth of spend for Diageo and try and save, I think it was about £256 million of that £900 million. By developing a process, which you develop a strategy, applying that strategy to our particular category, and then negotiating and executing on that strategy. So it was a terrific experience. Uh, international exposure. I went all around the world. Um, it was a tough gig. You know, I had to go to Barbados twice a year to buy rum. I was uh, in North America buying neutral spirits, the Philippines, New Zealand, Australia. It was a truly international business and a fa- fantastic learning experience. But I, I moved south with uh, my family to do that, and, and I'd always wanted to come back up to Scotland, and so it, and it always had been positioned as a two-year role. So I thought, well, you know, let's move back to Scotland. And to be fair, Diageo had said they could, I could continue doing that role despite being living in Scotland. We had an office in Edinburgh Park, and that role. Um, it wasn't really fulfilling. It wasn't really challenging me. It wasn't really fulfilling what I wanted to do, which was about developing teams, developing people. Uh, you were very much a sort of individual contributor in that role. And so I had an early midlife crisis, and I decided to leave, which, you know, in retrospect, was probably not a very smart thing to do, but notwithstanding that, you, you sort of walked away from all the sort of comforts and surroundings that large corporate life gives you uh, into a small organisation called the Change Partnership, which at the time was establishing its office in Edinburgh. And it was probably the largest executive coaching business in the UK, um, executive coaching being a relatively new trade and industry in the, at, those, at that time, the late, late 90s. Um, but I joined and really felt that I'd found my place um, and it was only, not only then, but, but it was then that I really felt I discovered my sense of purpose around what I wanted to do, the sort of people I wanted to work with, and uh, the sort of work I wanted to do in terms of a, a delivery piece. And, and that was really a, a sort of seminal moment for me. Um, and it, it, it sort of gave me a real sense of direction, a sense of purpose, a sense of you know, where I wanted to learn and develop and grow. Um, and that's that's been it for the last gosh nearly 18 years now I was talking to someone this morning and saying I'm, I'm almost into my third decade as an executive coach which is a slightly a galling thing to admit to but um, uh, there's not a day goes by when I wish I was doing anything else Towards the end of that you started talking about and you had this kind of tangible um, positivity this sense of fulfilment and purpose that you've discovered since making this transition into executive development and coaching but you talked about you started to introduce this kind of sense of risk and stepping into the unknown and something that was relatively new trade can you tell me a little bit about how you managed that transition into what might have been quite daunting at the time yeah it's it's interesting I I I think I'm probably quite an impulsive person. I go with my gut. And it felt like the right 
thing to do. It wasn't as much of a risk at the time, and it was a risk in terms of changing career, I guess, because who's to say that I would have been any good at, as, a, as an executive coach? Um, but it wasn't so much of a risk in terms of you know, leaving uh, the, the comfort of an organisation. Change Partnership was a well-established organisation. About three months after I joined, uh, we were acquired by you know one of the UK's preeminent headhunting firms, um, and so that was a uh, you know it provided a network and you know, reassurance and infrastructure. So it wasn't like I'd gone from the large corporate life into you know, being a sole practitioner, if you pardon the pun. There was a network of support around, there was structure, uh, there was some leadership in the organisation. So, you know, that, that was reassuring. I think it's a, a slightly bigger step that I took um, six and a half years later when I left the company organisation and, and went completely independent um, and did become a sole trader. Um, in both senses of the word, uh, and that you know that is slightly more risky because if you don't win work and if you don't earn a living, then you know you don't pay your mortgage and you don't put food on the table at the end of the at the end of the day. So, you know that was I guess a riskier move to make. But notwithstanding that, you know I I guess I backed myself that I traded uh, and learnt my trade over a six and a half year period. Had a great client base. Had a and. You know, reputation that was continuing to grow in terms of my profession, uh, and you know, I think sometimes you've got to take those risks. And it, you know, I, I didn't think particularly long about it. Um, I knew it was the right thing to do. I knew it was the thing I wanted to do at that particular point, and so just get on with it and, and do it. And you know, we started off working from home, and um, you know, so the overheads were very low, uh, and the risk then. You know, diminished slightly. I had a little bit of a buffer in terms of leaving the organisation. I had some contracts to deliver on, which I had the value from. So, you know, it was less of a risk than it might have appeared. Interesting. You've spoken about two transitions there. So the first was into executive coaching, and the second was actually becoming a sole trader and going it alone. And it strikes me that you, you're quite bold in taking those decisions and not spending uh, too much energy worrying about the risks. And um, we talk a lot about paralysis by analysis when it comes to decision making. Were you ever afraid that you might fail? No. And that might sound like a, a really arrogant thing to, to say, but I think... Um, you know, over my time in Diageo, I'd, I'd been lucky enough to progress virtually every two, two and a half years. I'd got a, a new job or a promotion. And so I'd grown up through the organisation. Um, and then when I joined the Change Partnership, although you were part of an organisation, you know, I learned very quickly that if I didn't go out and sell and didn't go out and uh, talk about what I was doing to an external network, I probably wouldn't be very busy. Uh, and so that became a driver for me. And, and, and when I first came into the change partnership, we had a model where you could either be a rainmaker, win work, um, and do some delivery, or you could be a deliverer only and, and hope that others in the organization would feed uh, coaching clients and send them your way. And, and when I joined, I wanted to be in that latter category. I, I just wanted to be a deliverer. Coaching was what I loved doing. I just wanted to coach. The thought of selling, you know, and, and, and peddling your wares was, you know, almost slightly vulgar. Uh, 
but I discovered quite quickly that if I didn't go out and, and get busy, particularly in, in Scotland where we were trying to establish our, our network and establish our brand, I wasn't going to be very busy. So I went out there and I started networking and I started talking about coaching and the value that it can bring. And I was relatively successful. And I, I guess there's no doubt, having had a background in high-performance sport and a reasonably well-recognisable name in Scotland, uh, that helped get me through a few doors. Um, but notwithstanding that, you know, once you get through the doors, you've still got to be very credible, uh, very clear about the articulation of what it is that you do and how it can benefit the organisation. But I built my practice there. And although I was part of an organisation... In coaching, I think very, people still very much buy you as an individual. And, you know, I found myself um, in a reasonable amount of demand and doing some really interesting assignments with some very senior people in a wide variety of different organisations. And, you know, that has continued. And the flip side of that is I, I really learned to love selling as well. I, I really liked the networking piece. I liked talking about what it is we can do because... You know, I really believe in, in what we do. Um, and that then becomes an easy pitch to people. You've developed a reputation as an expert in leadership over the past three and a half decades or so. Um, and this first emerged publicly on the sports field where you led one of Scotland's most successful rugby teams in history. And, and you've continued to develop leaders and high-performing teams in the boardroom. What are some of your most valuable experiences that help shape who you are as a leader? I think it's a great question because I think when you are in the maelstrom of leadership, whether it's captaining a rugby team or leading a team in business or whatever it is, you very rarely get the opportunity to sit back and reflect about you know, what is it that... that makes you effective and, and or, or not effective um, and what is it that you can learn and develop to, to be better um, you know sporting leadership is, is a really interesting facet of it and I think the first team that I captained officially was you know after school was Scotland so I had no experience of leading my club or university side I went from being captain at school captain of Scotland effectively and I think it's it's very often a little bit like parenting you know I very often ask people whether they go on a parenting course before they have children and very few do other than the sort of NCT type stuff which is uh, not really about parenting and values and I think as you grow up you experience your own experience with parents other parents and so on, you, you develop your own value set, you, your own set of beliefs. And then suddenly you have children. And your approach to parenting and, and looking after these children as they grow up evolves almost by osmosis and taking good experiences and bad experiences and then crafting your own parenting style without necessarily thinking about how what sort of parent do I want to be. And I think leadership is very much the same you know I think you experience great leadership and you experience poor leadership uh, and you create your own value set and you suddenly find yourself 
in positions of leadership and your leadership style emerges based on a lot of these experiences without actually stepping back and reflecting on what sort of leader do you want to be, how do you want to lead, um, what are the demands of the role, what are the demands of the situation, how can you apply that and, and be really effective in those situations. And for me that's a fascinating thing and I think particularly in, in coaching it Coaching provides you with that space to really reflect and think about some of that, those things. And so when I think about, you know, what are the lessons that I've learned, you know, I think there's, there's a huge number of lessons, good and bad, that I've learned over, over time. And, and just sort of small observations, think, and you think, well, I'm not going to do it like that. I will do it slightly differently. But the interesting thing is it sits in your subconscious most of the time. And you know, if I take sport, you are there in that leadership position. You have to make those decisions. And you don't necessarily consciously make those decisions or consciously reflect them unless you're doing something very specific. And there have been instances in, in my history, my career, where I have done very, some very specific and deliberate things to try and um, make an impact and you know, capture whether it's the imagination of the crowd or the people or the team or whoever it is, you, you want to try and say something inspiring to really appeal to the emotional drivers in the, in the individuals. And I can, you know, I can remember some of the most emotive you know, team speeches that I've done or, or listened to on, on both sides. Um, and those are the ones which really resonate because, as I say, they're, they're sort of hardwired into your memory because you have that visceral emotional reaction. And so, you know, thinking about how you can translate that into leadership and, and do it on an ongoing basis, perhaps <clears throat> not every day, but when it really matters, you know, really pull out some of that really inspiring, emotional, passionate things and, and really make it count. Um, and I think that's one of the things. I, I think the other piece around that I find... Uh, most prevalent in the leaders that I, I admire is humility. It's that <clears throat> ability to recognise that they don't know all the answers um, th and they are humble enough to admit that but they know where to find them and they know or they know to, how to build a team so that they will get, get all the answers. But they also recognise that it's not about them, it's about the organisation or the team or whoever it is. They're, they're there to act as a steady hand on the tiller rather than to be the person who's you know, flying the, the, the flag and, and you know, fielding all the wonderful press calls and these sorts of things. So humility, I think, is a, is a quality that I really admire in people and particularly in, in leadership. So, so if I understand correctly, it's, it's that humility and it's also being able to access what is in your subconscious, what are, what are those experiences and drawing on them at the appropriate moments? Yeah, I, th I think there's a bit of both. I think there's, you know, sometimes you, you, you will make conscious decisions and, uh, um, and hope that they come off. Uh, and, you know, for, for critical moments for me, you know, not relying on my intuition, but actually thinking through, you know, what am I going to say or how am I going to say it? Um, is really important and to, to really try and be inspirational and, and really engage and create that followership that you need. Um, but at other times I'm happy to sort of you know, back my intuition, back the subconscious and, and hope that I <laughs> hope that I say the right thing. And you know, if I get it right 
seven times out of ten, then that's a pretty good, re pretty, pretty good result. Thank you. Uh, you. You started towards the end there to talk about some of the qualities that you admire um, in other leaders, and you've been coaching, working with senior executives since um, the early noughties. If we turn from kind of desirable characteristics to looking at some of the challenges that they're facing, so what are some of the common themes in your experiences as an executive coach that um, leaders are facing? I, I think most leaders who get to the top end of the organisations uh, that they, they are leading are pretty good at executing stuff. They, they, you know, they have great intellect, they have you know, sharp minds, they're, they're you know, good strategists. Um, it, for me, it's all about the people side of things. Organisations are, are, are people um, and, and built with people in, in them. And I think it's like those people leadership aspects which are absolutely fundamental and, and recognising that you, know, you can't treat everyone the same, that certain situations will require a different approach to your leadership um, from an organisational perspective. Uh, you, know, you can't create a burning platform in a mature organisation uh, because it just won't, won't react to it. But if you're in a turnaround situation, you've got to have that sense of urgency. Uh, and you know, galvanise people behind it, and so you know, recognising that, that context is absolutely critical. Um, and and what I come across the most in coaching conversations that I have are, it's all about the people. It's all about managing stakeholder relationships. It's about you know, how do I get the best out of my team? How do I interact with my customers? Challenges with the board or. or but they all boil down to people-related issues a lot, most of the time. I would say 90% of the time they are people-related issues. And I think you know, that is one of, the, one of the things of coaching. You know, it's, it's, it's helping people to look at some of those challenges through a different lens and, and approach some of those challenges with a different perspective, different set of perspectives. Because back to the point, when you're in the maelstrom of it all and you've got you know, 120 emails popping into your inbox you know, every half a day, dealing with some of the, the, the softer aspects, the people-related aspects, is, is a lot harder to do. And, and again, coaching allows you to sort of sit back and reflect on your style and your approach and think about how you can look at these things differently and, and approach these things slightly differently. But as I say, it all comes down to the people. And I think the most effective leaders that I work with and come across have really well developed emotional intelligence um, and they're really curious I've always talked about curiosity as being a quality central to the most effective leaders it's back to this point about having the humility to recognise that they don't know all the answers but they're curious to find out what they are and having that curiosity uh, about their people some wonderful people, leaders of a, a business in Yorkshire um, family business and <clears throat> the executive chairman as he, as he subsequently became was just one of these most fantastic leaders who would know first names of every person uh, in the factory that, that worked for uh, the organisation he would know the names of their wives he'd know the names of their children he'd know how old the children were and he'd be really curious and, and he had this sort of encyclopedic brain which would sort of register it all and have a you know a very 
genuine conversation with people about their family rather than just sort of thinking about, okay, well, I'm talking to John here, I better ask how his wife is because I think she was ill or something like that. Yeah. Take, took a real interest in his people and what they were doing in the business. And it was the interesting thing was because it was a family business, the next generation didn't really want to follow him into the business because he was such a hard act to follow such a hard act to follow and I guess the shadow he cast was so large and he was he, he wasn't a larger than life person or isn't a larger than life person and but for one of the family members to follow him into that role they were always going to be compared to him and the chances are that that, that comparison would likely be unfavorable as opposed to favorable so a lot of the family members were reluctant to put their names forward to, to come into the business, which he was desperately disappointed about because family business, he wanted his children to and, and relatives to succeed him. And so it's an interesting uh, conflict there. And I don't think he set out to be that sort of person. He just naturally was that sort of person. Fascinating story. Um, David, we're coming towards the end of our interview today. Um, I've just got two more questions for you. Um, you touched on purpose a little bit earlier, um, bring us back to that. So my next question is, what gets you out of bed in the morning? Uh, the alarm clock. So I like to go swimming in the morning um, and I like to swim early. I, I really love diversity. So I love working with different organisations, different people, different challenges. Um, you know, I, I consider myself to have a degree of curiosity. Uh, so I'm curious about you know, what is driving people, um, the organisations that they work in, the industries that they work in, what, what, what is happening, what makes things tick and what makes the world go round. But fundamentally, um, and it took me a while to really nail this, fundamentally, um, and, and what I'm so passionate about as a coach is, you know, I think people have unfulfilled potential. And if I can help them get further and closer to fulfilling their, their potential, that, that's what I find totally fulfilling. So that is what gets me out of bed in the morning. And whether it's an individual or whether it's a team, that's the thing which I find really, really fulfilling. And if you were to pass on just one piece of advice to your children, what would that be? Um, well, I think it's... I think it's it's two bits of advice, and, but they are, they are related. I think um, it's do something that you're passionate about and, and be happy. And I, I would hope that if you're able to find something that you are passionate about, you, you will be happy. Um, you know, whether that's playing sport or doing something professional, but you know, we only get one crack at this life. And... Um, you know, sometimes by the time you realise that, it's too late. So take the opportunities as they arise. Do something that, that, that really gets you excited uh, and that you feel energised and enthused and passionate about. And hopefully that will, will make you happy. Thank you. I'll take that on board. <laughs> David, thank you very much, or Dad, thank you very much for um, participating in this interview. Um, I've known you all my life, and I've found out lots of new things about you today, so thank you very much. You're welcome. <laughs>